it feels weird to not have a computer here. But hey, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to start a new study today. Let's talk about where we're going to go. Had some feedback from you. Um, one of the things talking to some of the dads, some of the parents, we are going to do a parenting class, a parenting event. And uh, we will do that probably in the spring. Uh, it may take the form of a week-to-week class. It may take the form of a seminar or maybe both because we know those of you that are busy parents, uh, schedules are hard. So uh, just know that that's coming and uh, parenting is a great blessing and also a great challenge. And uh, so we want to be able to come around God's word and just remind ourselves of what scripture says. As we say in our family, it's always a comfort to remember that God is parenting us as our heavenly father, as we parent our children. And uh, you may have kids in the home, you may have adult children, grandchildren, but uh, there'll be something for everybody in that time. So that's coming next semester. The other idea one of you mentioned was uh, something related to uh, sort sort of um, you know dispensational versus covenant theology, and uh, you may not even know what those terms refer to. That's okay, but uh, I know there's a little bit of confusion about that, and and um, within um, brothers and sisters that we would call friends, that we would call united to the gospel and and like-minded. There's some variation in terms of how we view things like hermeneutics, how we interpret scripture, and then how that plays out in terms of God's plan as it unfolds in the Bible. And then that, of course, impacts how we think about end-time issues. And those are some of the nuances of a covenant theology approach versus a dispensational theology approach. Now, the good news is um, some of the method to my madness here, First Thessalonians, which I want to do for a number of reasons, the last two chapters largely address end-timed issues. So we're going we're gonna to kind of come in the back door as it relates to dispensational covenant theology because Paul is going to address um, the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus and, and how we think about what's going to happen you know, in our future. So we will get there, and then uh, Pastor Terry and I will we'll probably do, you know, we always look for opportunities to do this, but uh, we'll, we'll probably do some sort of uh, special event, special teaching at some point, uh, doing a deeper dive into those uh, systems of theology at some point. So if you're if you're chomping at the bit, we can point you to some resources. But just know that we're going to try to address both of those things in the future. Um, but First Thessalonians makes a lot of sense right now, and not just because the other two guys are doing Old Testament books. That that's kind of fun. But uh, no, this this is important because our theme this year is excel still more, and we're thinking about excelling still more, particularly in how we care for people. The phrase, excel still more, comes from this book. It's mentioned two times in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And with that, one of the the themes that we see as we read the book is that even though these folks were, were very new Christians and this was a new church, they really did very well in caring for each other. So I think we have not just a a logical book in terms of the book that addresses our theme, and we can really do a deep dive on that, but but it also is a book that will be an example for us as we see another congregation way back in the first century that was caring for each other well, and we can glean from that and apply some of those things that we learn there in our ministries to one another. So I think it makes a lot of sense, 
And I think it'll be great. Like I said, I've, I've never gone through First Thessalonians, First Second Thessalonians, so First and Second Thessalonians, and uh, it's hard to say quickly. But uh, so I think it'll be fun for me. This is a, a new study for me as well. So uh, we're just going to jump in there and go. And uh, this is the first blunder of the day. Hey, Eric, will you see if there's a clicker on the back uh, soundboard there? You have to probably get up and walk around. See, usually I just go click, 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 and I need hardware to do it. Might be in the drawer. Rob, you can help him out there. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay. Are you at First Thessalonians? Are you there? Okay. Thanks, big man. All right. Okay. So let's uh, let's dive in here. First Thessalonians. What do you know about First Thessalonians? Let's just uh, start with some collective knowledge here. What do you know about First Thessalonians? Other than it's hard to say quickly. Yeah, Hans. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's argued that either Galatians was first or First Thessalonians was first. But yeah, so it's it's definitely one of the earlier books. That's absolutely right. So it's interesting because the earlier books written in our Bible represent uh, an interesting look at what was the church like in its infancy, and then you you know you contrast that with a book like we just finished, like Second Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul wrote. So uh, so that's interesting for sure. Oh, yeah, works better that way, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, what else do you know? Okay. Okay, that's right. So Paul probably wrote from Corinth. Uh, he's been to Thessalonica. We're going to read the history here in a minute. He had to leave uh, rather quickly and sort of secretly because of persecution that arose against Paul and Silas. And uh, yes, he was very concerned. And uh, in fact, he sent Timothy to check on them. Timothy uh, returned a report that was overall positive. And so Paul writes the letter of First Thessalonians to express some of his relief and encouragement uh, that they're doing well. So what else? Anybody know where Thessalonica is? Anybody been to Thessalonica? Do we need to do a Grace Bible Church trip to Thessalonica and other places in modern day Greece? Yeah, you, you had a 50-50 shot there. I know, I know. Um, is it Asia Minor or is it Greece? Yeah, yeah. It's either going to be Turkey or Greece. This happens to be in Greece. Okay, so let's let's look at some of these things here. Um, I failed geography, so I brought a mat with me. So here we go. Uh, this is the boot of Italy, of course, Adriatic Sea. And this would be the, uh, the south end of Greece. And then when we get over here, this is Turkey over here. So um, in the ancient day, this little area right here was known as what? 
Macedonia. That's why it says that on the map there, Macedonia, see? And uh, <laughs> you guys are great. I love it. Uh, so, so you, know, you see some of these towns here, okay, these towns that are going to sound familiar, Philippi, Thessalonica, and then when you come down here to the peninsula, Athens, Corinth is right on this little um, passageway here. And then, of course, if you go to the other side, to Turkey, to Asia Minor, you see Ephesus and then uh, what we call the, the letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Those all are represented over on this side of the, the water there. Okay, but that gives us a little bit of idea of um, geography. Where is Thessalonica at? Um, you can go there today. In fact, if you go there today, uh, that's what it will look like. And uh, right on the coast here, as you can see, it's a very, a very significant city because you've got this little uh, land that sticks out here creating a cove. So this became a very valuable port city because it was isolated from the waves and the weather to some degree. So very uh, popular port city in Paul's day, lots of commerce. It was also located upon a, um, a highway, which would have been the main land uh, passageway for travel. So between vessels coming in and out of the port and the road that was used for transportation, uh, Thessalonica was the place to be in the first century. Okay. Uh, isn't that beautiful? That's modern-day Thessalonica. Of course, this was not here in, in Paul's day. In fact, they've done some excavation work. There's not a lot there. There's some things there, but like a lot of places in this part of the world, they've been built up and then torn down and then built up and torn down, so... Uh, there aren't a lot. There are some ruins there of the ancient city, but not as much as others. Okay, so if we look in our Bibles, as Carl helped us to remember, First uh, Thessalonians is written by the Apostle Paul, accompanied by two of his buddies, Silvanus, also known as Silas. I'm sure Silvanus is only what his mother called him, and everybody else called him Silas, uh, and then Timothy. And uh, you'll know something of, of those men. We'll talk about them more as we get into the background here. And, you know, a lot of times Paul's writing a letter to someone, and, and he's essentially the author, but, but he's writing really on behalf of a team. So you might see Paul and Timothy or Paul and Silas, uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, as in this case. But, uh, but Paul is, is owning uh, the majority of the content here of the letter. So he, he writes this, and uh, it says here, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So we, um, we know some the authors, the, the, of course the letter tells us who the authors are. Um, the date is around 51 A.D., that's, that's within probably a year. It's interesting, uh, and those of you, if you have a study Bible, uh, no doubt your study Bible references this. There is a, an archaeological find that dates the book of Thessalonica within a, a year of accuracy, and, it, and it's based on the reign of one of the Roman authorities. And because we know that Paul went before that Roman authority uh, shortly, I think after the uh, the, the letter was written, we, we can date the letter. 
uh, to within about a year of that event. Uh, we'll see that unfold when we go back to the book of Acts here in a moment. But anyway, so that, that date is, is pretty accurate. Some of the other letters we're having to guess uh, based on other factors. But uh, just to remind you, as Hans reminded us, that this was probably either the very first letter written or perhaps the second letter written, depending on who you ask. But uh, almost certainly, James and First and Second Thessalonians were the first letters written. We have some evidence to think that James may have been written in the late 40s. Uh, it's also possible that that was written a little bit later. But regardless, you see First and Second Thessalonians are written very early on in biblical times. And, and this is, um, you, you guys know this, both in the Old and New Testament, the, the arrangement of the 66 books is not in chronolo- chronological order. And that can be very frustrating if you're a new reader of Scripture or a new Christian. You know, why can't we just put them in alphabetical order and I make it a lot, a lot you know, easier. Well, the the Lord in His Word, and uh, and the writers that that put the book together, the editors, they had reasons for putting them together the way that they did. Uh, some of them are are coupled, of course, thematically. Some are coupled based on the type of literature they are. Um, so when we're looking at the New Testament, we recognize that the events of the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—those events obviously happen first, and then the church. Uh, in terms of the letters, in terms of the book of Acts, in terms of Revelation, that those come second. But even though those events are in a chronological order, the letters are not necessarily written in that order. So the Gospels come first, but Paul wrote, or uh, James wrote, and, and Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians first, then First and Second Corinthians, then Galatians, then Romans. Uh, Matthew probably happens in the late 50s. Uh, Some argue for it later on. Uh, Luke, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, those are all together because they are called the prison epistles. They're all written at the same time from prison. Uh, The book of Acts, which is Luke part two, right? Uh, That's written uh, around the the early 60s. First Peter, first Timothy, Titus, second Timothy, and then Paul's done. That's his last letter for Paul. And then following second Timothy, second Peter, Hebrews, Jude, Mark comes later. Some argue Mark comes earlier. Um, John, First John, Second John, Third John, and Revelation. So pretty good agreement that the, those all came later in the century. But anyway, the idea is they're not written in chronological order. So we have a very early letter here uh, based on good external and internal evidence. Okay, makes sense? So, uh, so when was this written? Like, uh, 51, but, but what, what were the circumstances surrounding the occasion, what we call the occasion of the book? And so what I want to do is take you back to the book of Acts and set the table. Because a lot of times the book of Acts, which is the history book, gives us the background and then we can sort of insert Paul's letters into that history so we can get an idea of what's going on and then we can see what he wrote. So just hold your place in 1 Thessalonians and turn back to Acts 17. Okay, so if you look at Acts 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and and Apollon... Help me say that. Appalling, uh, I just can't. (laughs) And I speak for a living. What's that? Apollonia. Apollonia. Thank you. 
Yeah, that actually probably says, that probably makes sense. I was putting the accent in the wrong place. Um, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So that's, this is where Paul and Silas and perhaps Timothy come to the town of Thessalonica for the first time. Why are they going there? What's that? They're going to set up a church, okay? What brought them to that region to do that? Uh, that's correct. There, there was a vision to do that. But back up just a little bit to chapter 16, and, and it'll come back to you. What happens in chapter 16? Yeah, yeah, that they're in. Okay, so so let's back up. Okay, so what happens? Um, they come into the city of Philippi, right? And uh, and they preach, and people get saved, and things go well. And then what happens in chapter sixteen, verse twenty-two? Let's look at it together. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They're they're having a worship service in there. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains, not just theirs, everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped and, you know, that would be his head if if that happened on his watch. So he was just going to take care of things early. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights, and they rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And and they spoke um, the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. And they rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when they came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. And have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And so they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them. And then they departed. So those are the events happening in uh, Philippi, right? And that leads then to their need to leave. And so they go about 100 miles. It wasn't like it was next door to Philippi. So let's look at this together here, okay? Got another map here. This one's a little prettier than the other one, isn't it? Okay, are you you oriented here? We've got 
the nation of uh, Israel. Right down here, you see Jerusalem. And uh, this was what was Syria in those days, Damascus. So all the, all the gospel action takes, away, takes place right here. This is Paul's second missionary journey. It starts in Acts 15.36, goes to 18.22. And uh, so he's at, uh, when he starts his second missionary journey, he's up here in a town called Antioch. And he just follows the coastline back through his hometown of uh, Tarsus. Up here, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pos- in Poseidon. There's, there's two Antiochs, make a note of that. This one's always distinguished as being the one in Poseidon. And then, so this is modern-day Turkey, right? This is modern-day Greece, and then, of course, modern-day Italy over here. So up here, around here, up and around through Troas, they cross the water to Philippi. So when we're reading Acts 16, we're thinking these are events that are happening right here again in a region known as, say it with me, class, Macedonia. Okay, so they're here. And then we just read why they had to leave. So then they come all the way down. There's Amphipolis and what's it called, Joan? Apollonia. Apollonia. And then down here to Thessalonica. Okay, so makes sense. And then you can see how eventually he's going to work his way down to Berea. Remember, uh, they they were more noble-minded because they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. That's where that happens. Down the coast to Athens and then to Corinth. Okay, so once Paul gets to Corinth, Timothy probably rejoins him at some point. We don't know if Timothy stayed in Thessalonica for a time or whether he was even there. There's some debate on that. But eventually the three of them meet up again in Corinth. Paul doesn't want to leave Corinth, but he really wants to know how the Thessalonians are doing. So he sends Timothy back. Timothy goes and checks on them. And then Timothy writes a letter. Um, actually, we don't know that. He either reported in person or he wrote a letter to Paul saying, hey, things are going really well. Uh, there's some things going on, some questions that the Thessalonians have. Uh, but overall, he was very encouraged by the report. So he writes First Thessalonians from Corinth, which gets sent back to Thessalonica. And then later on, he sends Second. Thessalonians as well from the same town. Okay, and then you can see he follows this path back to Ephesus and then eventually back to the area known as Palestine. Okay, make sense? All right, so that's what we're talking about. So if you're in the book of Acts now, that that brings us up to our section in uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Okay, so they come to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for, for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Um, what was Paul's custom when he would go into a new city? Yeah, he'd, he'd find the Jewish synagogue and he'd go and he'd start there. And, and remember, um, you know, Romans talks about this, other letters, uh, other letters talk about it where uh, Paul always talked about going to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And very often what would happen is he would go to the synagogue, he would preach to the Jews, and uh, sometimes conversions would happen, sometimes not. Sometimes there'd be 
severe persecution. Sometimes it would be mild, but eventually his ministry in that town would move toward the Gentiles in most cases. And that's likely what happened in Thessalonica. He went to the Jewish synagogue, it says here, for three successive weeks, three Sabbaths, and ministered, reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And then, um, and notice what happens then, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and, and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So not just Jewish converts, but now you have Gentiles or Greeks uh, who were persuaded as well to follow Jesus. Verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous... And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, who was probably a Jewish believer, and perhaps um, uh, the apostles were staying with him, as we come to find out, um, they, they went and attacked him in his house. They were seeking to bring them, Paul and Silas, out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. How'd you like to be known as the guy that upset the world for Jesus? That's not a bad title to have, is it? And uh, so these men have upset the city, upset the world. Uh, they've come here also. Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the degree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so they, they manipulated the Gentile authorities, the Roman authorities, uh, claiming that the message of Jesus as Messiah in some way was a political threat to the Roman Empire. And uh, using that angle, verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and then when they, when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. But again, like in Philippi, because of the nature of what had happened, verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they left under nightfall, meaning even though they were released, the, the, the suspicion was, the notion was that uh, they weren't out of the woods, that they were still in trouble with the authorities and with the Jews there that were persecuting them. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of an idea of um, the background here. Okay, so as we're reading First uh, Thessalonians, uh, we know the audiences, of the believers there, the historical background is Acts 17, and uh, there are some themes. And um, one of the things I'd ask you to do, you guys that have taken my classes before know that, that I, my challenge to you, my homework assignment for you, is to read the book of Thessalonians every day. It's a short book. You literally can read it in one day in a relatively short amount of time. If you read that book once a day, every day for this fall, you will be, we will call you Dr. Thessalonica. We will, because <laughs> uh, you'll be an expert on the book. But seriously, it, it's a great way to really learn a book and be saturated with a book. Um, but by way of introduction... I want to show you a little video that will give you an overview of the book. So as you read, you can be looking at some of these themes. Stand by. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. 
This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul, and the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews, and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. 
And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer, that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. First Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what First Thessalonians is all about. Pretty good, huh? So um, if you're not familiar with the Bible Project, now you know about it. And they have little five to seven minute overviews of the books, of all the books in the Bible, I think now. So, And uh, their, sort of their expertise is this you know, pseudo-comic overview. 
which makes a lot more sense if you watch the video and let it develop like that. But uh, anyway, so you see, you see some of the themes, you see some of the um, topics that we're going to be talking about. So, so your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to start reading this book every day and saturate yourself with it, begin to start drawing out some of those. And I think it's going to be a great study uh, as we seek to grow in holiness and, and caring for each other and excelling uh, the way that the Thessalonians did with each other. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Uh, what a wonderful letter to embark on today in a study. Uh, we are so thankful for how the Bible is so diverse and it provides instruction and encouragement, hope and admonition in so many areas of life. And, and we, we trust that this is what we need uh, for the hour in which we live and the challenges that we face so thank you, Lord, for the example of the Thessalonians. Uh, thank you for your work through the Apostle Paul to write in a, a God-breathed letter that, uh, that we can learn from today. And so guide and direct our steps. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we will draw closer to you and we will excel in our care for each other as we're careful to study these words and, and put, them into, put them into practice in our church. Uh, we're grateful for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.